This is James DeMatteis, and you're listening to the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962 last Wednesday's afternoon. They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned. The amazing spider. Of the amazing spider Come swing the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mischievous Mark Giannacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everybody at home for joining us for the fifth episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors and a creator as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, Dan, and we're excited for this uh, episode here because, you know, as part of this third season of all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger uh, through his transition into the Bronze Age, uh, a time period that's known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. Um, so to that note, we're going to be talking about Peter's relationship with his best friend and then eventual worst enemy, Harry Osborn. Uh, we've long known that Peter and Harry have been close friends, but it really wasn't until the Bronze Age that Harry's traumatic past would transform him into Peter's enemy, uh, his arch enemy, the Green Goblin. Yeah, Mark, these are some of my favorite stories of this era, but uh, I think between you and I, our own passion for these stories wouldn't really be enough to sufficiently talk about these stories and the impact they've had on Amazing Spider-Man, the series, over the years. So, I mean, who better to have on the show than J.M. DeMatteis, author of The Child Within and the Best of Enemies arcs, wherein Peter and Harry fought to the death. He's going to be joining us to talk about the importance and influence of these early Spider-Man stories. Absolutely, yeah. And if you want to read along with us, uh, we'll be talking specifically about Amazing Spider-Man issues number 135 through 137, which are uh, pretty readily available through digital services and pretty much everywhere else where you can find comic books. I'm sure they must have been collected a dozen of times. Absolutely. Except not not JMD stories, which you will talk about later in this interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for every book that's been published a million times, there's some great books that have never been brought to book form. Uh, so, yeah, uh, look, I'm looking forward to that conversation. But as always, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. So if you enjoy this show even just the littlest bit, and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. All we ask is that you consider it. Just go check it out. It's pretty cool. Just consider it. Uh, <laughs> and thanks again to everyone who does support us, who's, who are past the consideration point. To you, we call you friend, but today we are here to talk about how Peter would call Harry his frenemy. With 
think there's this kind of a love-hate relationship that you have with your best friends. You know, I mean, that these are people who are very close to you, but they're also, in a sense, very threatening uh, because they know you. You know, they know how to hurt you in ways that somebody else doesn't know. So a best friend is somebody that you that you that you value both because they're there for you and because they don't use what they know against you. <laughs> so it's like uh, it's a complicated thing. And I, I, I guess on some level I wanted to, to use that as a metaphor, you know, with, uh, in the background for, for Peter and Harry's uh, relationship. Plus there was this, this – I always felt there was this kind of dynamic between them uh, of this kind of unequal f- relationship, friendship, where there had to be a kind of jealousy that each of them felt for the other, you know, because on the one hand, you know, Peter does end up with Mary Jane, who was originally, was Gwen originally with, I mean, it's like they went back and forth. They did the Betty and Veronica thing back and forth with those, with those women. So there was a certain potential uh, jealousy in that regard, but there was also this kind of jealousy in that Harry comes from money, Harry comes from wealth, Peter doesn't. So in a way, both of them envy the other, you know, that that Peter obviously could envy Pat Harry for for his wealth uh, and his social class and, you know, the ease of his life, you know, financially. But Harry also envies Peter for Peter's freedom from responsibility, ironically, you know, a family responsibility of, of having to live up to the father's expectations, you know. So there's a kind of an interesting dynamic there. And I just liked the idea of, you know, my, my, my best friend, my, my, my worst enemy, you know, this, as, a, as a dynamic, especially since Harry, you know, would have this kind of psychotic break where I could go back and forth, you know, <laughs> he could be his friend and not his friend, friend and not his friend, you know, back and forth. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. I just, I just found it as a, as a potentially a potential gold mine for, for, for stories. And there's this other aspect too, that, that villains in my mind are always at their best when they have complicated emotional history where you can feel some empathy and sympathy for them. And, and certainly I think you could feel that for Harry. Well, Dan, before we bring in the great JMD, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, these, these three issues that we'll be kind of referencing in our in our conversation with him um, just to kind of you know for those who haven't read or maybe haven't read it in a long time or maybe just recently read and want to hear our thoughts on them I mean these are again issues 135 through 137 although I think the the actionable moment in 135 is kind of towards the end it's not like a critical point of like the whole issue but that's okay but these are these are from jerry conway and ross andrew uh during that run um i'm sure jerry conway has heard enough from us over the last couple of years so uh (laughs) we didn't we didn't we didn't feel the need to talk to him about these some more right (laughs) no Uh, I think I think we have talked to him about these before. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure when we first had him on to talk about the Green Goblin and stuff. But you know, these are these are really interesting stories. I mean, like I, I think you know, a lot of times when we when we think about the Peter and Harry stuff, I think we do tend to think more about the Jane Demetria stuff just because it's a little more recent. And I feel like um, some of the the thematic beats from that 
uh, showed up in other media, like like Spider-Man Three specifically, and even like the Amazing Spider-Man Two, and some of the cartoons and the Ultimate Run and stuff like that. You know, without and and JMD would would cop to this. I think without these initial stories from the seventies, I mean, there would be no foundation for that. And and you know, like we'll talk about obviously. Peter having a best friend and all that when we get JMD on, but I think beforehand, I mean, specific to these stories, I mean, what what you you mentioned in the intro, these are some of your favorite stories. I mean, I, I'd love to hear just what you thought reading these, especially in the context of everything else we've known about these characters that's more contemporary to us. Well, I, I find these issues really interesting because it almost seems like a reset for this book after the death of Gwen. You know, it, it, it's it, they make very clear like that. The goblin is not going anywhere, right? We've got a new goblin. We've got a new girlfriend of, you know, uh, pretty declaratively in these issues. It felt like the book was kind of like finding its stride again. I mean, not that it really took much of a a, a beat off when when Gwen died, but um, you know, it's kind of like it's a it's almost exactly a year later in real world continuity. And we're already kind of diving back into the the scares of the death of the girlfriend and and the you know return of the Green Goblin. And so in many ways, it kind of feels like a rehash. But there is a certain kind of elevated emotional element here that I think is indicative of a lot of future Spider-Man stories. That it goes even beyond just the father of my friend to directly someone within my inner circle who I'm I'm battling with and. I think that the emotions and the kind of psychological turmoil, it's appropriate that we're having JMD on for this. Like, th- this is the point where the book really ups the level of psychological games in Spider-Man comics. Like, the Norman stuff, we don't really get that much into the head of why Norman is doing what he's doing because he's just a lunatic, you know? And, he, and whatever went wrong with him in this with the serum and his own past... He just decides to kill Gwen. There's nothing really uh, truly psychologically directed about that in the way that there is with the Harry stuff. And I feel like this was kind of a growing up moment again for Spider-Man comics. And that's kind of what I like about these issues. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I mean, it's it feels like, you know, what's always made the Green Goblin probably the arch nemesis, if you will, I mean, putting aside Doc Ock and all that, um, is this personal connection to Spider-Man. And as Norman Osborn, I mean, like that personal connection was really, I felt more um, sprung by Norman learning Spider-Man's identity. I mean, like, because like other than that, I mean, yes, he was his friend's father, but they had no relationship. Like, I mean, it was a very kind of passive relationship um, I mean, like, I think other media would make it seem like it was closer that like and then in, in, in later years, they would, you know, it was like that Norman saw Peter as more of an heir than Harry. I mean, like that was the theme that was often hit upon. But, you know, for the purposes of these comics, that 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 stuff was not even in, you know, entering anyone's brains yet. So by bringing Harry into this in, in, in this way, I mean, it really makes this a traumatic turn for Peter because it's like not only. Not only is his nemesis now someone he knows deeply, but it's it's almost like another loss for Peter. I mean, this is this character who's already experienced all this loss with Uncle Ben and then Captain Stacy and then Gwen Stacy. You know, basically Harry kind of turning to the dark side, if you will, and and kind of being fueled by this this raw anger for Peter for what he perceives Peter did to his father. Um, you know, he it, it it completely destroys 
his relationship with Harry, and of course puts everyone else next to, close to him at risk. I mean, it's it's like a double whammy. It's really like you said, like the psychological elements of this are like off the charts. And just to be clear, like what you know, Harry's perception behind like, fueling this goblin thing is that you know he perceives that Peter killed his father, in that he knows Spider Man killed his father based on the textual evidence you know, as laid out by Peter, like, you know, like Peter wants him to think, you know, that like his, he doesn't want him to know that his father was the green goblin and was evil. You know what I mean? He, he basically like wanted to take the rap for it to save Harry some pain. But then Harry discovers in Peter's apartment, which he says he's been suspecting for a while. And we get a particularly evil looking, you know, Harry in, you know, in one thirty five. I mean, mask or no mask he is the goblin seemingly already yes and and that's what really like kind of like turns the screw for him that his friend has been lying to him and then there's the additional level which is kind of peter's callousness about dating mary jane in the wake of her leaving harry um and i don't think harry says as much like that that's fueling it but they do address it enough in the book that there is a kind of like like male ego level to this story that's kind of cu- coming in and this kind of bitterness about Peter kind of taking away a lot of his life, which like the Norman Peter relationship doesn't really develop into years later where Norman wants Peter as his heir instead of Harry. But this is kind of the first like thing in that line where Peter is stealing things that were rightfully Harry's this kind of rich spoiled kid who expects to get everything that the movies would eventually really kind of lean into that. Like Peter was the real son Character, so you get the birth of all this Genesis ideas in, in, in this one chapter. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, they like I, when when Peter and MJ go to the the apartment initially before the apartment blows up in 136. I kind of, I mean, you know, MJ is the one who's like, Are "You sure this is a good idea?" And Peter's like, "Ah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> All's fair." <laughs> well, but Peter's kind of bitter himself because he's yeah. like, you know, I haven't seen Harry in a while. Like, who gives a crap about that guy? So, yeah. like, there's a, certainly a, a breakdown, and and you could really attribute a lot of that back to the drug code issues, you know, where Harry really starts kind of going off the deep end with drug use that kind of unlocks a part of his mind. I mean, you can call it a kind of, like, drug scare, you know, thing. But, like, it does. It, it unhinges the character enough that these, you know, demons start to come out. Yeah. I mean, to that point, the one thing that always kind of made me pause about these issues was, you know, clearly the crazy for Harry to become the goblin is well developed and established. Like, I don't I don't question that Harry would, upon learning this information about Peter, want to become the Green Goblin and avenge his father's death. Sure. But the thing that always kind of throws me about this is like, you know, in in these issues, you know, Harry shows up as the goblin and he's like whipping around on the glider. He's using like the shock gloves and the pumpkin bombs. And and I'm like, wait, how did this like dopey rich kid like learn how to do all this? (laughs) Like, like, like where I mean, because, you know, it's established that like Norman kind of. Gets a gets a strength boost from the serum, you know, and and right, and, and Harry, Harry wouldn't, wouldn't do that for like over a decade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't think it was until the what was it, the JMD issues that Harry takes the serum. Um, yeah. I think, and which is what leads to his death eventually. Um, so that that always kind of like, I mean, you know, I'm sure we can no prize it a bit, but like it, it, it that always kind of like threw my suspension of disbelief a little bit. Like I, I think. 
the drama is to me is more, oh my God, my friend has become my nemesis in this very dramatic and horrifying way. And he could also destroy my secret and destroy everyone close to me because of how deeply he knows me. But like the fact that they kind of make Harry to be a physical threat from the onset was always kind of like, eh, I don't know if I buy that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a moment later on where Spider-Man is like, all right, I'm taking the gloves off and he like knocks him out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you do get a sense that there is a bit of a vulnerability and, you know, these are the kind of things you could really kind of pick apart in Spidey comics. I mean, like, I guess eventually Doc Ock did succumb to being b- beaten in the head a bunch of times, but you could apply that to any number of, like, villains who've been punched by Spider-Man. Like, they, he should really be able to tank these guys. Although I do feel like in the Dicko era, they had a little more... Uh, uh, you know, uh, of an intentionality behind that. Like the shocker could get punched, but his vibrations, as lame as that is, could somehow allow him to absorb those punches. <laughs> there's always there's always an excuse. <laughs> you have a great note here about the issue that's even prevalent on the cover of the issue. How Peter addresses uh, the goblin in these issues. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's it's something that always stuck out to me from the very first time that I read these issues. That like I I and I I think I even blogged about this on Chasing Amazing back in the day. Um, I, I I really appreciate this again the psychological elements of from the moment Harry appears as the Goblin. If you look closely, Peter or Spider Man only addresses him as Harry. He won't call him the goblin. And, you know, there's kind of like, you know, I think there's a little bit of denial at play. But it's also like, again, it's like he's 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 almost like not going to dignify what Harry is doing by calling him the goblin. I mean, even after Peter learned who Norman was, you know, he's still in those issues with call him Gobby or, you know, it's like there was like that that Spider-Man banter and the 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 self-effacing humor and and you know like spider-man's own defense mechanisms but here he's there's none of that there's no play there's no banter he's just he's just calling him harry and it's like to him he's not the goblin this is his friend harry gone off the deep end yeah that's really great point and um yeah it's just again these are all about the personal elements like one of my favorite touches in this comic is when mary jane after the bomb explodes in their apartment she's lying in the hospital bed and you could call this story a rehash, but actually it's kind of a thing trading on the history of the character. He sees, you know, Mary Jane in the hospital and the specter of Gwen, this floating head of guilt, appears over Mary's head, like literally superimposed over it as if she's just the next in line, uh, you know, in the Gwen Stacy lineage. And I always found that moment to really powerful, be really powerful. And, and Peter gets this look in his eyes that's actually quite reminiscent of like a John Romita Jr. drawing where Peter just looks haunted. Uh, and uh, it's one of my favorite beats in the whole piece. Yeah, you got to love the floating heads in Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> also in terms of repeat, you know, we, we've got the whole family threatened by the goblin thing. You've got to save the family or some you know related person. And Mark, this is one of my favorite parts of the book because... The scheme of this is so insane. Uh, <laughs> I don't even think the comic takes it totally seriously. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of like a Bond villain level of like nuttiness in terms of so Harry kidnaps Flash, MJ, and Aunt May. Although, like, they never and they never show it. So this all happens like off panel. Um, but he also like hijacks 
a truck to get like, I guess, like explosives, right? Is that what we established? He's getting explosives out of these trucks? Oh, hold on. It's not just explosive. Okay, you explain. <laughs> they, they seem to be in some way kind of like dangling. It looks almost underwater, but I think it's like a TV screen. But above their head are cold fusion created nuclear bombs. There we go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like they're not just nuclear bombs. Someone solved cold fusion in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and Harry Osborn was able to utilize it to kidnap three of Peter's closest people without really showing how he was able to lure them and kidnap. Like, did he do it as Harry? Did he do it as the Goblin? Or, or like, like, they, you know, we don't know. But the thing is, only one of them actually has a bomb attached and it's up to Peter in six minutes which how do they, how do you figure that? And, <laughs> like, and like, don't forget his web shooters go out too. They're they're malfunctioning. Yes, yeah, so malfunctioning. So he's got six minutes to find the person closest to him who has the bomb. And Peter, again, not really de- demonstrating what the logic is. It's kind of like I know how Harry would think. And he goes to Aunt May, and of course Aunt May has the bomb, and and I guess MJ and Flash are safe. But like, first of all, like why I consider this kind of a Bond villain level thing is like, you know, just put all three of them with a bomb. Kill two of them. You know what I mean? Like, like, what are you doing? Like, if you want to screw at your friend, kill them all. <laughs> like, like, why are you giving him the chance to save somebody? <laughs> um, so there's that. <laughs> I love, I love that when he dis- finally disarms the bomb, he like throws it into the water and it's like a cherry bomb goes off. You're like, right. you mean, you mean this was the cold fusion nuclear bomb? Is this like the Dark Knight Rises or something? I mean, what's going on here? It's just kind of hilarious that the threat level is raised that high, and yet they're all in New York City, and you're like, you know, if a cold fusion nuclear bomb went off, it doesn't matter which one had the bomb. They yeah, right. all die. <laughs> yeah, like, like seriously, just put all three of them in a room <laughs> and then blow up the whole city, I guess. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's pretty absurd. But hey, you know, comic books, Dan. Um, so. My other favorite beat in this at the end of issue 136 is when Nor- uh, Harry's about to, I almost said Norman, when Harry's about to like kill Spider-Man and his glove is out of juice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he just can't kill him. And he's like, fine, I'll see you later. And he leaves. Yeah, and right? you're like, oh. Your mania really has a lot of control over it. It's like battery powered. <laughs> right? I would kill you if I had the bullets. <laughs> um, it's great. Um, but um, it, I do feel like the issue kind of redeems itself uh, with the ending. Now, granted, I also feel part of the ending is a bit of a cop out here um, because, you know, the police are are escorting Harry away and, you know, and he's like, I know who Spider-Man is. It's Peter Parker. And Peter kind of has this look of like, well, he did it. You know, like it's over. <laughs> and they're all like, oh, what makes you the cops are like, what makes you say that? He's like, I'm the Green Goblin. And they're like, sure, kid, whatever. What a bunch of nonsense. And I'm like, well, you know, why? Like, why is this also like far fetched? Like they don't uh, uh, like, you know, like Harry really could have just done it there. And they kind of like say, ah, nah, he didn't really do it. But then, like, there's this great line with Peter where they're, you know, they're kind of taking him away. And, you know, you, you kind of get the sense it's not just prison. Like, there's probably an element of uh, white coats coming for, for Harry here. And Peter's just like, whatever I can do to help. And it's kind of, like, passive, but, like, 
the way it's it's framed by Andrew and 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 you know in terms of how it's rendered like I don't know like to me like it, you really feel like the the, the despair from Peter because like it's like he wants to help but I think he knows there's nothing he can do like this is this is like beyond well beyond what he can do and it's and it's a, it's a bit of a gut punch at the end like his friend is gone like it's this is that's over it's over it is it does come across as kind you know because. Yeah. You know, after all that, I mean, just still have him say that. I, I, I agree with you. It, it, it could be like really snarky, but uh, but I think it, it's ultimately a very kind moment for for uh, the character. Yeah, I, I mean, again, there's a lot of silliness in these issues. I mean, it's the Bronze Age, but like again, there's a level of sophistication here that I think makes these really stand out issues. Definitely. Well, speaking of sophistication, why don't we now transition over to our, our conversation with Jan Demetrius, uh, just about the friendship and these comics and some of his own comics related to Peter and Harry. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. All right, Dan. Well, as as we introduced here, we are joined here today by uh, J.M. Demetrius, uh, writer extraordinaire. Uh, of course, many, many historic uh, stories on Spider-Man. But what we're actually here to talk to him about today is, as we've been discussing throughout this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, it's we're looking at the, kind of the Bronze Age era of Spider-Man and, and some of the memorable stories from that. And we want to look specifically at the relationship of uh, Peter Parker and Harry Osborne, uh, which took quite a turn during this run. Of course, this is the run where Jerry Conway wrote those famous stories where Harry became the Green Goblin. And JMD, of course, many years later, you wrote probably some of the most beloved stories between Peter and Harry. So we thought, you know, you'd be a good person to, to join in on the conversation today. I, I hope that's OK with you. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. I hope I have something of value to add to the conversation. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, we're we're just we're just going to shout opinions here. So it, okay. it's always valuable. <laughs> okay. um, and, you know, if it doesn't work, we'll just talk about something else. So there exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we could always improv. So, you know, I guess just to kind of start things off, you know, it's talking about the whole idea of of. Peter Parker having a best friend. And, you know, it's funny, like when this character was first introduced in the Silver Age by Stanley and Steve Ditko, he's kind of presented as this loner, this outcast. He, he doesn't have friends. He's bullied. But also he he kind of doesn't want to he doesn't really want to be popular. He, he, he He's fine doing his own thing. And he kind of almost finds himself superior to a lot of his his peers. And right. He was kind I, of angry and obnoxious and arrogant, as I recall. Yeah. Not not really someone that you'd be friends with. <laughs> right. 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 So I, I, I guess, you know, obviously over, you know, after the, the Ditko Lee run, I mean, things kind of softened with Peter. He became social. He had girlfriends. He dated Gwen. He dated he would start dating MJ during this run here. But I'm curious, you know, from your standpoint i mean the idea of peter having a best friend like i mean putting aside if it's harry or flash or whoever i mean what what do you think about that does peter does peter need friends should he have friends of course i mean peter parker of all people on the planet all superheroes that you can think of because peter is the most human relatable uh superhero in comics as far as i'm concerned we all need friends we all need someone you know one one good friend is worth a lifetime right and certainly with all the stresses and pain and struggles in Peter's life, he desperately needs a friend. You can't just keep talking to Aunt May. 
No. <laughs> Probably get sick of the wheat cakes after a while, too. That's, all right. Those conversations. That's, right. That's right. Really, the truth is Peter should be should be like wildly overweight because I'm sure she constantly overfed him. <laughs> when it comes to uh, creating interpersonal relationships for Peter, uh, you know, his friends, etc., what are some of the elements and themes that you try to keep in mind as a writer when you're when you're working with that element? You know, I don't think that way. I don't think about, you know, what what themes I'm developing necessarily. I mean, sometimes a theme presents itself and you realize that's the theme of your story. But I tend to you want to reach the point where the characters take on a three dimensional life of their own and then they lead you. So it's not like I'm going to craft this relationship between Peter and Harry in some specific way. I'm going to hopefully get out of the way and let Peter and Harry lead me forward and, sh- and reveal their relationship to me, which I in turn reveal to the readers. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, yeah, it's, I how, think- it's how life works. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, obviously I think about my stories and I'll have outlines and I'll have this and I'll have that, but when it's really cooking for me, it's about just getting out of the way. You know, I love to know, okay, here's where I think the beginning is. Here's where the middle is. And here's where the end is. I'm it, it, all those tent poles may get knocked over in the course of the story kind of taking off on its own. And I like it better when that happens. You know, just let the story flow. Let the let the characters come alive. Let the it feels like the story itself is a living thing, and let it flow and let it go and see where it takes you. So ultimately, the relationship between Harry and Peter is dictated by Harry and Peter. So I mean, speaking of Harry, uh, <laughs> I mean, what about him? Do you think works as as Peter's friend, as his best friend? I mean, I mean, obviously, there's the relationship to Norman. And, and, you know, a Spider-Man's mortal enemy. But, I mean, is there anything else there that you think, like, makes you want to write these characters together? You know, uh, I think it's, it's like anything else. There's a chemistry between them. And I think the fact that both of them started out essentially as loners, two people that, that were off sort of in their own little worlds and, and Harry thought he didn't need anybody else. I think for Peter, it's more um, he's always always been the he was always the oddball kid as a kid anyway, because he was the big brain and the oddball with the big glasses, you know. But as I said before, we're all human. We all desperately need somebody. And and when that wall finally breaks and you find another human being that you can relate to and who cares about you and you care about them, that's all it takes. And you don't have to necessarily even share the same intense interests or anything. I don't, I don't know if Peter and Harry, do they really share the same interests? I don't think so. But but they but somehow they found each other and they need each other. And, and uh, that's a very precious thing. Well, on that point, you know, uh, when we first, you know, meet Harry and Peter, they're kind of at odds with each other over a kind of a misunderstanding at college. And there's this friendship that kind of is formed through, I guess, experience. I, yeah. I, I guess I'm curious, do you feel that in some of these earlier stories where you drew from for your own stories, though the two are portrayed as friends, that that friendship is really earned? You know, it's been a long time since I looked at those old stories. So um, I, I know as a reader, it always seemed that it flowed naturally for me. I know in my own life, I've had people that I've met. I didn't particularly like them. They didn't particularly like me. And somewhere along the line, we became great friends. That's, that happens a lot in life, I think. So I don't think I don't think that's a, a massive leap right there. And I, for me, yeah, to me, it always seemed pretty natural. Why do you guys have problems with it? Oh, we haven't really discussed it, but um, you know, it's it, it's you know, it's, it's a lot like a lot of these early relationships. They seem kind of uh, I don't know if superficial is the word, but they're they're not like the book is focused on other things. Uh, whereas today, you might get more of a kind of decompressed look at like 
what their interests are, as you can discussed. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't really on the minds of these characters, and and Peter and Harry come from very different like socioeconomic backgrounds. You right. know, it's, it's it's like what what is the thing that binds these guys enough for fifty plus years in? They're still considered each other's best friend. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I I I think that's kind of where I come from too on it. It's I think that people have kind of writers and creators have added to the mythology that have kind of made that earn. But when you when you look at it from the beginning, it was just kind of I felt almost like assigned like and, you know, now after, you know, they, they're kind of introduced as rivals. And then, you know, during the, the Stanley Ramita run, it's like and now we, we will bestow a friendship upon you. You know, <laughs> um, uh, it's just a, it, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't always gel. And then all of a sudden it starts to gel really well. Like I always think of like I think probably like just going back on my own, like reading experience, I, I, I started to really take that friendship to heart like during like the the drug issue the 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 drug issues yes. the drug yeah, yes. like like i mean that really felt like it landed and and you know peter's peter's care for his friend and kind of his friend you know harry's own insecurities i i, I mean i feel like that's where that whole element really came to light and i i feel like his insecurities really make that dynamic interesting between the two characters yeah yeah i, I was thinking about those issues myself with because that really deepened uh, the relationship it deepened Harry. It deepened both of them, um, and I think also when they became roommates, you got you started to see that as well. Um, but but that story in particular was a big was a big leap forward. You know, you talk about when the Remedy years, which was my favorite, some of my favorite, if not my absolute favorite, Spider-Man years, especially the first year or so of Remedy's run. But it was it was almost it almost became a different book. You know, when when Ditko left, uh, it's like Stan said, now I'm just going to do whatever whatever the hell I want, you know, <laughs> which was, was just his prerogative. And he did a great job. But the whole tone of the book really, really shifted. Peter shifted as a character. The whole tone and flavor of the book in terms, especially in terms of Peter's personal life, completely changed, completely changed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've we've I mean, I've, I've known some people have kind of compared it to like, you know, Riverdale, the Spider-Man years. But, yeah, I mean, I in think some ways it was. Yeah, yeah it was a bunch but, of middle aged guys trying to write young quote hip uh, characters right. but when i was you know when i was 12 or whatever it was reading them i you know i, I thought it was cool <laughs> yeah and definitely the, and the draw you know and 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 if some of those aspects of the stories you know date a little bit uh the 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 the, the drama and the the angst of it all that, that all still holds up really well i mean my favorite spider-man story of all time is still that first ramita uh green goblin story where we find out that norman is the green goblin and it's just it's just classic. It's a great story, so filled with emotion. And I think uh, when when Stan had more control of the stories, uh, I think the emotion got amped up even more, uh, or or one might say the emotion slash melodrama. Ditko's style is a little more contained and inward, whereas Stan's is much more outward. Definitely, I feel like Peter becomes far more vulnerable during uh, the Romita years. Like he he expresses himself in a more emotional way. Yeah, yeah, it's more it's more outward, and yet everything they're doing is building on stuff that Ditko did. You know, without that Ditko foundation, there's nothing to build on. Um, but yeah, that's it's it's just the difference in style and and, and personality, I think, between the two men. Because Ditko, for those last whatever it was three years, really was controlling that book because he was plotting it and drawing it. And you know, Stan brought his Stanness to the whole thing, which raised it up a level. But it was a very different thing once I think Ditko was gone and Stan could have, have more control of the stories. Although, from you know, from what I've heard as they went along too, he handed a lot of that over to Ramita as well, who took control of a lot of the story on the book. 
Yeah. So speaking of building on other uh, writers and artists' work, you've had the opportunity many times in the Spider-Man books to follow up Jerry Conway on various runs. When you were writing stories like Child Within, how much did you lean on those initial Harry as the Greek Goblin stories from Jerry and, and Ross Andrew? You know, from what I recall, and it's been a while, I really didn't beyond the fact that 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 relationship was set up that way. I really kind of followed my own muse on that. I wasn't looking back. I I don't remember even rereading those stories uh, at the time. I just I remembered them as a reader, but I didn't I didn't go back and go, let me look at this and study this and study that. I knew that the relationship was there. And I, I was just fascinated by the whole concept of best friends, worst enemies. I mean, the, the, the drama inherent in that, which is why I personally prefer the Harry Osborne Goblin to the Norman Osborne Goblin. It's more intimate. It's more personal. There's more inherent drama in it. There's more emotion in it. So I just kind of took that foundation of Jerry's and just built on it in my own way. I didn't really go back and refer to a lot of things beyond my memory of it. When you look back on both some of those earlier stories, but also your own stories, I mean, what you've talked about a few times already with us about how you try to connect with what you're writing. I mean, what, what, what connects you to Peter and Harry. I mean, I know you said the best of friends, best of enemies. I mean, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Yeah, well, there's certainly nothing in my in my personal life that I can relate to, relate to with that, you know. Yeah. Because okay. I, I don't. I don't. I don't have. Don't happen to have an arch enemy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I never really thought about it. But all relationships go through all kinds of different permutations, even with your dearest friends. And there are periods where you want to strangle your dearest friends, aren't there? You know, you're really, really good buddies and you go through a period where it's just like, oh my God, this person is driving me up the wall, you know? Um, so I think, you know, that relationship in a way kind of takes the normal, as, as comics in their melodrama often do, take the normal things that we deal with in our day-to-day life and exaggerate them to the point where they almost become symbolic of of the inner things that go on uh, with us. So so you can take the small bumps that go on in a real relationship between two best friends and then turn it into this massive battle between Peter and Harry, which plays out the internal world. And that for me is what, what the best of these stories are about anyway. It's about this sort of colorful, larger than life comic book thing which is really just a reflection of, of of the inner world that we're all living with all the time. Did that make sense to you? I think so. And oh. and Dan, I, I I'd like to say on the podcast for everyone to hear that I have never been frustrated with you as a human being. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes one of us. Uh, <laughs> you've, never, you, you've never flown past each other's house on a glider and shaking <laughs> your fists through the window or <laughs> don't let him know you, don't let him know if he wasn't you know, all the way out in california i'd probably be doing it on a monthly basis just <laughs> throwing a little pumpkin bomb out there but you know <laughs> a glider fuel is expensive dan so you're lucky so much fun about those stories because they were so close and their families were so close you know and they were so intimately woven into each other's lives it, it was the, the combination of the intimacy and and the and the anger and the antagonism and yet the love never goes away you know and and that's what I love in, in any character in any story you you're looking for that sort of duality that push and pull between the opposites which we all live with in some form in our lives and again expressing it outwardly so that made that that made, you know, if you think about even they're like a family and you think about family dynamics and people that come from screwed up dysfunctional families which is probably most of the people on the planet yeah. um 
we have these people that drive us crazy, that sometimes we're very angry with, and yet we love them. And our love for them never goes away, even if, if two people aren't talking to each other anymore. You know that they still love each other in some way. So so it really, uh, thinking about it, it's really, it's even more more than a friendship. It's like a family dynamic. It's like brothers. So I, I'm, I'm curious, do you have a favorite version of Harry from uh, either the comics or the movies or animation, whatever, timeline, the ultimate, 616. I, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I guess see, my favorite is the Harry that I know best, which is the Harry from my run, you know, yeah. because that's the one that that I know to his core. You know, you work with, especially when you're writing these stories that are so psychologically driven, you get to know these people and they're, they're, and they're people to me. You get to know them uh, to their core. So I know that Harry very well, very well. It's amazing to me so, to see how much even like that early work and your work has been adapted into whether it's cinema or animation, et cetera, like that, uh, you know, these, these runs that are so, you know, disparate in time from each other have kind of been wrapped up in such a succinct way that, get, that when you mention Harry Osborne, that's like almost number two to what you know about him is that he would follow up his father as this kind of crazed Green Goblin character. Right. And, you know, all, all credit to Jerry Conway for coming up with that, because, uh, as I said, it's it's such a powerful, emotional, psychological dynamic between the two of them. It's it's great. It's great. And I, I didn't, as I recall, I wasn't even on my radar necessarily as I was thinking about it when I was taking over the book. And what I remember, there might have been just a scene, a blip in an issue or two before that where Harry was sitting at home and there was like a balloon from off panel calling to him and you got the sense that his mind was just starting to slip a little bit and i thought well that's interesting and that started me thinking about the relationship and the next thing i know that really became the dominant theme for the next for the two years of my run on spectacular spider-man well legacy villains are a dime a dozen and tend to disappear after like an issue or two you know i can thinking of like uh like lady octopus and things like this you know mm-hmm. uh, they just don't hang around long but the green goblin is the exact opposite of that he's had a half a dozen spinoffs who themselves have sustained for a while and a direct legacy character like Harry that I, I think if you were to add it all up, Harry's probably been around longer than Norman has in that role. Yeah. Um, you know, if you forget that Norman came back and has been doing weird things now. Um, <laughs> what do you think makes a legacy villain work and sustain itself? I hate to sound redundant, but it's 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 not a question of what makes a legacy villain work. It's a question of what makes a character work. And it's all about the character. It's all about the depth. It's all about drilling into their heads and their psyches and finding what's interesting and compelling. And, you know, I always say it's like you, you pull off the top of the character's head, you get your flashlight and you start poking around in there, especially with these characters that have been around forever. You've got to, you know, shine that light and go, mm, there's a corner that we haven't explored before and yet remain true to that character. So Harry is just an interesting guy and an interesting character, especially in his dynamic with Peter. And, you know, Norman Osborn, could, it's like, you know, it's like how many kids has Craven had that haven't really stuck? You know, it's not that interesting, but create one that, that has a really interesting uh, psychological and emotional dynamic and it maybe could stick around as long as Harry has. Sure, I I hope so. I mean, we've got a new Craven that just popped up in the comics a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. not optimistic, but we'll see. Just on on kind of an, another note, you know, I I I know you had mentioned earlier that you, that when you were writing your own stories, 
with with Harry, you weren't necessarily looking specifically at the Jerry Conway stories, like to kind of do a one to one or anything. But you know, you've you've obviously read these stories over the years, and you know, I think one of the things that always comes through uh, about like both, I think the end of Stan and Ramita's run and Jerry Conway's run was kind of this idea of social unrest, the Vietnam war, the culture of those days. So when, when, if you can think back to those stories, I mean, what about the statements and the culture at times you see coming through in that work? I mean, like, did that, did did you do pull anything from that? Um, and did that kind of inspire you as a writer in this medium? That's interesting. That's interesting. You know, my work tends to be more psychological, emotional, spiritual than political. My run on Captain America got political because it's Captain America. You can't write a Captain America story with some sort of uh, without some sort of political uh, tint to it. But that's not the thing that fascinates me in writing. It's just not. And yet, you know, when Stan was doing it, it you know, it was the 60s. It was everywhere. You couldn't you couldn't uh, you couldn't open your eyes without it being in your face. It's kind of like in a different way, like it is today. As much as we want to avoid what's going on and pretend it's not happening, you can't. And this and the '60s were even more so. It was exploding everywhere. So, um, and I also think you know you know Stan was at that time really invested in giving Marvel this this and I'll put it in quotes hip contemporary vibe. And so he wanted to bring those elements in because he knew college kids were reading the books. Those, those, you know, that was a big part of the audience then. So he was, I think he, not that he wasn't concerned about those issues himself, I'm sure he was, but he was also, and it's not a bad thing, playing to his audience and kind of giving them what they, what they, what they wanted to, and also upping the cachet of his comics at the same time. Look, we're dealing with all these, quote, hip contemporary issues. You said you approach comics from a very psychological angle, and I think anyone that's read your work will immediately pick up on that. Uh, your Spider-Man is uh, one of the most, I guess, thoughtful versions of the character. Like, we, we really spend a lot of time in his head, and it's something, uh, I'll just say, I'll be honest about today's comics, I, I miss a great deal of. I don't feel like we get those pages of Spider-Man swinging through the city, thinking about stuff uh, all that often anymore. You know, I but I think those initial Green Goblin stories with Harry are amongst the most psychological issues of the comic. You know, in the '60s and '70s, you know, watching his struggles and and even Norman Osborn had a psychological bent early on with his amnesia and and things right. like this. Right. Do you think that might be what drew you to those characters? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's it it was an opportunity. To do what I do, if you know what I mean, uh, it was it was a perfect vehicle to do what I do. So so yeah, I, absolutely that 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 uh, that drew me to the characters. I, I don't know what else to really say about that that I haven't said already. But uh, but there was just so much meat there. There was so much meat there, and that whole story, you know, it was really the, the child within, especially, was about really peeling them both down to their cores. I mean, we went back and back and back. It was like unwinding their psyches right back to their childhood. And with with the character of Vermin as well, doing the same thing. And uh, I think it's one of the best stories I've ever done in terms of mainstream superhero comics. And I have to say, I can't believe it hasn't been collected. It is it's, truly it's, strange. It's been collected. It was just collected again. I think it's been collected in Italy and South America. I keep, people from other countries keep telling me, oh, there's a new collection coming out of The Child Within. And what... And I don't understand why, frankly, why that whole run with Sal hasn't been collected. It baffles me, totally baffles me, because I've had stuff collected that I kind of go, hmm, 
why did you collect that? I don't want to ever see that again. You know? <laughs> and here's these stories. And it's Spider-Man. It's like this major character. And these are stories that I'm very, very proud of that people obviously appreciate and respect. And they're not out there. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm completely baffled. So to that's the my point complaint. That there the are like weird fan collections that are popping up here and there. Yes. And, uh, yes. You, you think that there's some kind of strange behind the scenes thing going on, some weird. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would be, but it, it just seems almost like negligent at this point. Yeah, it, it kind of it feels strange to me. I don't know the reasoning behind it. And qu- quite honestly, I never know about these collections until I'm reading the. Uh, you know, the announcements that come out that everybody else is reading at the same time. Uh, and I always scroll through it every month, you know, like, oh, is it going to be this month? Will we see the child within in there? And uh, still no child within. You know, the, some of those stories from that run individually have been collected here and there. But in terms of uh, that, and I think I was, I was in Italy last year uh, for a convention, and they had just come out with a beautiful edition, and they had, you know, cleaned up all the artwork and done, done all the stuff. And the guy said, well, now Marvel can, you know, we've done all the work. Marvel can just put this out easily. And uh, it's a year later, and I haven't seen it. So I, I have no answer. You'd have to ask somebody at Marvel about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you've written a lot of stories for a variety of characters and across DC and Marvel. And, um, you know, most prominently, you've written stories that include, like, the Joker and, and also, obviously, we've talked about the Green Goblin. And, uh, you know, just from, like, a like thousand-foot view, helicopter view or whatever, both of those characters, to me, always have seemed like a strange kind of visual matchup for their heroic adversaries, especially to yeah. be, like, their primary enemies. I mean, Dr. Octopus seems much more in line with being Spider-Man's mortal enemy than, say, like a Green Goblin character. Um, And I guess that argument has been made, who's the real main antagonist over the years. But what do you think it is, you know, despite those designs and weird eccentricities of, say, the Green Goblin the Joker, what do you think it is about the Green Goblin that's made the character endure all these years? Uh, You know, there's there's a real simple thing of the visual which is just this great if you think about it kind of a crazy visual and, and the idea it you know how comically the green goblin i think now if it was invented now he would just be called the goblin right because we don't do the color thing as much as they used to in the 60s but uh but it's it's a fantastic visual this this crazy demonic thing and you're right he's he's, he's kind of a, a he looks like a demon and and if you look at his face and the joker's face they're kind of similar in a way they have you know they have their kind of crazy grin and the long chin and their crazy eyes but then, you know, the thing that that going back to the original Green Goblin that sold me as a as a kid, as a reader on the Green Goblin, was that dynamic again. When we once we found out that the Green Goblin was the father of of Peter's friend. I mean, that's like suddenly I remember being being a kid and, and I wasn't really reading Marvel regularly at the time, but I remember seeing the cover to I think it was thirty-eight or thirty-nine Amazing Spider-Man, the one where the goblin is dragging peter he's not dragging spider-man he's dragging peter through the sky it's a classic classic cover it's the first romita issue and as a kid i remember thinking you wouldn't see that in a dc comic it's the villain versus the hero not spider-man but that's the hero you could see a little bit of his costume beneath his clothes you know but that sort of uh, encapsulated what the dynamic was about it was personal in a way that most hero villain things aren't personal it was really you know when you could talk to any Spider-Man writer and you say, I don't write Spider-Man. I'm writing Peter Parker. Mask on, mask off. It's, these are stories about Peter Parker. And once Norman was revealed as the Goblin, those stories were about Norman Osborn and Peter Parker. And the same thing with Harry. It didn't matter whether Harry was wearing the Goblin outfit 
or not. Uh, when he was the goblin, it was still Harry and Peter. And I think that for me, I know even as a kid, as a reader, that's what sold the character. Before, you know, when he was just some another villain flying around uh, on a glider, he was cool. But I don't think he became a great villain until it became personal. That's my that's my view anyway. Well, I, th- I think that's a that's a good point to end things here on, on with this discussion. Dan, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you so much, Jane Dimiteus, for joining us. A pleasure. A pleasure. Happy to talk to you guys. Well, thanks again for joining us for our fifth episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, what's coming next for the show? Well, Mark, uh, our next episode is going to be looking at a sometimes overlooked Spider-Man B title, and I'll I'll admit that I often overlook this one. (laughs) Shame on you. Shame on you. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, this is going to be, it's been a journey for me, too, and uh, this, this particular one obviously made its debut during the Bronze Age. It's none other than Marvel Team Up. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be uh, discussing a few key chapters that make this series worthwhile to Spidey fans, especially like you know fans of classic Spidey, um, and as well as breaking down the format of the book. And you know what, J.M. DeMatteis is going to rejoin us for that episode as well. So you know if you enjoyed his interview here. Why not come back in a couple weeks? That sounds awesome, Dan. I can't wait. Well, uh, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 20.hu. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for the exciting coverage of, uh, well, it's not really a new run anymore, Dan, but it's a a newish run of of Amazing (laughs) Spider-Man. It still feels new in the wake of Dan Slott. Very true. After 10 years from one creator, even a year of another creator, creator feels new um so remember for just three dollars and 99 cents a month the price of a new comic you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews the swarm b book reviews extended interviews mailbags uh and more and for ten dollars or more a month you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork this season from barry kitson great mark and also all you listeners at home while you're checking out our patreon you can download and listen to our sister show the untold talks of spider-man Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community, where we're all theorizing about the twists and turns behind Far From Home. Is Nick Fury chameleon? Is uh, Mysterio lying or telling the truth about there being another dimension? We're going to find out in in a couple weeks, actually. But, uh, you know, uh, we're going to be speculating over there. Uh, Mark. If we wanted to find out your thoughts about Far From Home, have you rejoined us on Twitter? Yeah, I I, I have, in fact, been on Twitter. I, I got to see Avengers End, Endgame uh, the second weekend that it was out, so I'm, I'm no longer afraid of spoilers. Uh, I also got to watch the Far From Home trailer, which has spoilers from Endgame in it, so we're, we're all caught up. Um, I mean, that's not to say that Twitter is still not a cesspool of toxic everything, but I'm on there more than I was the prior weeks. So you can find me at Chasing ASM Blog. Uh, and of course, you could still find my book. I mean, we got Father's Day coming up. If you want to find uh, an old copy of a book, it's 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Uh, you can get that wherever books are sold. Dan, where can we find you? I love that your uh, pitch for your Twitter is... Here's my Twitter account, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, because <laughs> I log on to Twitter and I immediately get depressed in. <laughs> <laughs> it's not untrue. But again, we're here to try to spread some positivity on Twitter. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at 
sup spider talk where I'm just tweeting insanities all the live long day, mostly Spider-Man related. And why not check out our website over at AmazingSpiderTalk.com. Excellent. So, Dan, uh, you got anything to set me up with here? Well, you know, I don't know if this is true in the MCU for Spider-Man, but on our show, our motto always remains the same, and we're always sure to remember it, Mark. Yeah, even five years into the future, this this uh, mantra will be the same, which is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Don't, don't miss the next instant.